Well, good morning on this wet weekend. Some of you look somewhat dry. We are in the Gospel of John. Uh, the title of this morning's message is A Witness, the True Light, and Us, John 1, 6 through 13. So if you have the English Standard Version, it's page 886. Sometimes we need a witness. <clears throat> when I was 17 years old, I had my first car. It was a beautiful yellow Volkswagen Beetle. And uh, I was going down a major avenue, keeping the speed limit. I was going the speed limit, or under. And came to an intersection, the, the light was green. So I was going to go through, but as I went through the intersection, a car turned in front of me, and bang, we collided. So I got out of my car, and the other driver got out. I was 17, he was about 35. We looked at the damage, and as we talked about the accident, I realized that he thought that I was at fault that I had been going down the avenue so fast, I'd been speeding, and he didn't even see me. It was my fault. And he had a witness. His wife was sitting in the car. So we talked about going to ICBC. He made his report. I made my report. Surprisingly, ICBC receives two very different versions of the accident. Who will ICBC trust, believe in? The 17-year-old, the irresponsible, speeding 17-year-old, or the 35-year-old couple? Well, unbeknownst to the other driver, I had a witness. <laughs> I pulled away from that intersection, stopped in a parking lot, maybe shedding a tear because my little beetle was now damaged. And a man who worked for a courier service, he came over and he says, Hey, I saw the whole thing. If you need a witness, I'll give my report to ICBC. So he sent his report in, ICBC read his report, and decided in my favor, yes! <laughs> Sometimes we need to know the true story, and we also need a reliable witness. Well, John is a reliable witness. He was an eyewitness, and he writes the Gospel of John. In his first letter, 1 John, he writes the following, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So here, John, the, the eyewitness, he writes the gospel of John. He writes the, first, the, 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 the three letters of John. He writes the book of Revelation. What he has seen, what he has heard, what he has touched, he testifies to. Sometimes we need a good witness. Who was the first great witness to Jesus in the Gospels? Well, today's text will tell us. Who is Jesus? And what does it mean for us? Again, today's text will instruct us. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. Father, we thank you again for your word. And we thank you that we can come together and worship you and study your word in freedom. And we're mindful of those around the world that do not experience this freedom, some who live in fear of authorities. Lord, we pray that they would rest in your peace today, that your hand of protection would be over them. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign over all things. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus. We thank you for your written word that testifies to Jesus. Jesus, we ask that you would teach us this morning. I pray that nothing I say would stray from your word, that your word would remain with your people, that we would understand it, Jesus, and know how to live it. So we pray that your name would be glorified, Jesus. 
Amen. John chapter 1 verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Back to verse 6. There was a man sent from God. This word sent means that the person was sent on a mission. Actually sent as a representative of God. A specific task. Whose name was John. Who is this John? Well, it's not John the writer of the gospel. John never mentions his own name in his gospel. He's referring to John the Baptist. In all four gospels, the first great witness to Jesus is John the Baptist. No need to say the Baptist here. We immediately know that this John is John the Baptist. And he was sent from God. You see, a true witness carries divine authority. Now, an interesting thing, that this word sent used for John the Baptist is the same word that Jesus will use in John 20, 21. When he's talking to his followers, to his disciples, he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So no, we are not John the Baptist, but what does it mean to be sent by Jesus? We'll come back to this question. For now, let's go to verse 7. He came as a witness, referring to John the Baptist, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him, to bear witness about the light. John 1.31 tells us that John believed that he was to reveal Jesus to Israel. Jesus says in John 5, John 5.33, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. See, John the Baptist was this burning, shining lamp, and what was the purpose of his witness? That all might believe through him, verse 7. Believe is to have faith in, to trust in, to commit yourself to. You trust in a person. John 1 verse 35, the next day, John, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus and as he walked by and as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. <laughs> you see, John, the writer of the gospel of John, he was first the disciple of John the Baptist and John the Baptist pointed him to Jesus. Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist. John the Baptist pointed Andrew to Jesus, and then Andrew went and got his brother Simon Peter, and together they followed Jesus. A true witness always points to the light. You know, this witness theme is huge in the Gospel of John. In fact, John will talk about witnessing 47 times in his Gospel. It's a major theme. The Father witnesses, the Holy Spirit witnesses, the Scriptures witness, the crowds witness, the apostles witness, a Samaritan witness, woman witnesses. And all of the witnesses point to one person, to Jesus, the light. John 1 verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. You see, to be a witness, you need to know personally. A witness bears witness to something that they have experienced, something they have known personally, a person that they know. And so John the Baptist has met Jesus. He saw the Spirit descend with his own eyes, and he knows. So he's a witness. He points to the light. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He knows he's not the light, but he points to the light. To those who walk in darkness. John 1 Verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. (laughs) What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. So John the Baptist, always pointing to Jesus, a true witness, knows he is not the light. Two times in these verses we have read to bear witness about the light. Why is that repeated? Why is that important? You see, John the Baptist, he was proclaiming a message. He was calling people to repentance and the crowds were responding. The crowds were going to hear him proclaim this message. And as they repented, they were coming for baptize. And so his ministry is going. So easy for John the Baptist to begin to think, oh, I am the sent one. I am the anointed one. Maybe I am the light of the Jewish people. But he knows he's not the Messiah. And so he always points people to Jesus, the light. Even in our days, so easy for us to think, okay, I understand life. I've I've figured it out. Life is going well. My family's doing well. My business is going well. My ministry is growing. I must have figured things out. Maybe I am the light. And instead of pointing people to Jesus, I begin to think that I am something of a savior so dangerous to have a Messiah complex that some, for some reason we should be the answer to a person when Jesus is the only one who is ever an answer to anyone. A true witness knows he is not the light. John 3 verse 28, look at this. John the Baptist is speaking. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. What a beautiful testimony. I went to a wedding this week, and thankfully, the best man didn't get it wrong. He didn't think that he was the bridegroom. He never tried to position himself in the place of the bridegroom. He didn't want to be in the limelight. No, he pointed to the bridegroom. Never thought that the bride would join him in matrimony. You see, it's so easy for us to get it wrong. To think that we are the light. Or someone else other than Jesus is the light. The true witness always points to the true light. The true light. Now, you and I are not John the Baptist, but if we are followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, then our commission is much like his. We are sent to proclaim the message. We are sent to be light, to be shining lamps in this world, 
to point to Jesus. And in, in as much as we point to Jesus, we are light. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do we want to shine as lights in our generation? St. Patrick, he was born in the, the 5th century after Christ. He uh, was born in Britain, the part of Britain that pertained to the Roman Empire. He grew up in Britain. Actually, his father was a Christian. His father was a deacon in the church, but Patrick himself did not believe. At 16 years of age, he was kidnapped by some Irish pirates, and he was taken to Ireland. And there he lived for six years. He worked as a sheep herder. And while he was living as a slave... He learned the Irish language, he learned Irish culture, but more importantly, he began to read the Psalms and meditate on those Psalms, and he prayed, and he began to trust in Jesus. He believed in Jesus. One night as he was sleeping, he had a dream, and he heard a voice that he should go to the coast, and so he gets up, and he makes a long journey to the coast, and there he finds a ship in the harbor, and he gets on that ship and sails back to Britain. He's reunited with his family. He's then educated in Britain and France. He's studying to be a priest. But while he's, while he's studying to be a priest, he senses the call of God on his life to go back to Ireland and share the gospel message with them. Well, Ireland is considered to be beyond civilization. It's beyond the Roman Empire. It's just a world of warring tribes. And these warring tribes, they're full of fear. They're, they're afraid of death. They're afraid of evil spirits. They're afraid of the future. They don't believe in a God that is sovereign over all things. And so they think that life is full of hidden traps. They believe in all of these different taboos and superstitions. That's what happens to this day around the world where people do not understand that God is sovereign over all things. Life is full of superstitions. You see people tying things around their wrists, putting things around their necks, wearing things, carrying things because of superstition. That was the world of Ireland. They believed in something called shape-shifting, that reality itself was unstable. And so you might be a person today, a boar tomorrow, and a wave the next day. You just never know. That was what they believed. And worst of all, they sacrificed their own children. Why? Because they believed that their gods demanded the blood of their children. That was Ireland. It was to that world that Patrick went, believing that God was calling him. He was a good missionary. He identified with Ireland. He became one of them. But more importantly, he pointed to Jesus. And so where these warring tribes lived in fear of the evil spirits, death, the future, he talked about a Jesus that had conquered sin, that had conquered death, that had conquered the evil one. And the Irish that believed were set free where they were afraid of shape-shifting, that their identity was uncertain. He talked about a Jesus that could set them free from that uncertainty and they could rest secure as children of God. Where they believed in all kinds of taboos and superstitions. He said, no, no, Jesus created all things. He's sovereign over all of life. No need to fear. No need for superstition. And most importantly, 
Where they thought that they needed to sacrifice their children, he talked about the father, their heavenly father, that had sent his own son to die for them. Jesus' sacrifice, once and for all. No need for more child sacrifice. And so it stopped. And Ireland was transformed. Patrick pointed them to Jesus. You can read about that in a book called How the Irish Saved Civilization by Thomas Cahill. Are we true witnesses in our generation? Our generation is no darker than 5th century Ireland. This last week I was praying with a young man. He'd gone to a pub here in Metro Vancouver and they were celebrating the German demon of Christmas, Krampus. And so after that experience and some others, he was being tormented. Well, the good news is that the Jesus that freed the Irish is alive today and he continues to have authority over all evil spirits and there's nothing to free, to fear. Jesus reigns. That's the good news. Do we know the true light? Do we believe in the true light? Verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Why does John talk about the true light? You see, in his generation, people were looking for something true, something genuine. The Greeks were looking for some true knowledge. They believed enlightened people knew the truth. And Jesus comes as the truth, not a truth. He's truth personified. You want to know truth? Look at Jesus. For the Hebrews, they thought that light was contained in the Torah, the law. And so being in the light was all about being morally pure. Well, Jesus comes as the very righteousness of God. He's holiness present, the very presence of God. And so John proclaims the true light was coming into the world. And our generation yearns for something true, something authentic, something genuine. Genuine. We live in this world of messaging, being bombarded by messages, people trying to sell us stuff, and we wonder what is true. Jesus is the truth. It's the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is the perfect light. Emmanuel, God with us. The true light which enlightens everyone, another translation would be, which gives light to every man. To give light is to shed light upon, to make visible. Jesus makes God visible. Jesus continues to shine, shed light on everyone. Listen to John chapter 8, verse 12. Here we hear the words of Jesus. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The true light coming into the world. This is an act separate from creation. The true light coming into the world. What does John mean by world? Well, in John's gospel, world is the world of human affairs. It's the human system organized in opposition to God, a human world that lives in in rebellion against its maker. And Jesus comes to that world because he knows that world that's in darkness needs a savior, and he does it out of love. True light sheds light upon every person. Only Jesus can reveal to every person who God is. Now, the good news is that Jesus has come to shed light on every person. And then John introduces, you know, after this amazing affirmation that Jesus has come to shed light upon every person, he introduces this epic irony. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world was made through him. 
Pastor Jonathan talked about this last week, that the Father spoke creation into being, that the Holy Spirit sustains creation, and that all things were created through Jesus, through his agency. And so the Trinity, all three persons cooperating together, creating all things, sustaining all things. Verse, Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Yet, if we go back to John chapter 1, the world did not know him. How could the world not recognize him? To know means much more than saying, okay, God exists, I believe that. No, it's about a personal relationship. This knowledge is, it's a personal relationship. John the Baptist, he knew Jesus. And so the expectation of Scripture is that we will know Jesus. That we will have a personal relationship with him. So it's amazing that the world would have been created by Jesus, and Jesus comes to the world, but the world actually is in opposition to him. In fact, as you read through John's gospel, that the world becomes hostile to Jesus. John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so humanity does not receive its own creator. Jesus, the light of men. John 1, 4. Jesus, the light of men, is not received. The world is blind. Verse 11. And here's one of the saddest statements in all of Scripture. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Those words, his own, refers to his homeland. Jesus comes to his own people. The Jewish nation, his own heritage. And they do not welcome him. Why? Can you imagine going home after a long day of work or a day at school or after an extended absence? You return home and you are not welcomed, you are not received, and not only not welcomed, you're not recognized. (laughs) People don't know who you are and they do not relate to you. It's the great irony of human history. One of the main thrusts of John's gospel, the Jewish rejection of its own Messiah, despite all of the convincing proofs, Despite a multitude of witnesses, the Father himself, the Holy Spirit, the scriptures, the apostles, a multitude of witnesses pointing to Jesus and yet he's rejected. Why? Well, because Jesus just just doesn't meet their expectations. They're, They're waiting for a political Messiah, someone that will free them from the Romans. And Jesus doesn't come in that way with that message. And then there's their their theology, their their theological framework. Jesus just doesn't fit, even though they have the scriptures. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39. He's speaking to some religious leaders, and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, we study the word because the word points us to Jesus. The true light. Life is in Jesus, in knowing him. In being in a personal relationship with him, the living God, the son of the living God. John 5.44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So there's a third reason. The hardness resident in their own hearts. 
They want glory. They want to receive glory from each other. They want the glory. (laughs) They're actually not thinking about the true light. They're thinking about themselves and the glory that they might receive. So the true light came to the human race and was rejected by his family. Meditating on these verses, we need to think, well, do we see? When we read the scriptures, do we see? Every time we read the scriptures, we need to play God. If there be any blindness in my heart, if there's any blindness and I'm unable to see, remove the blindness. If there is any hardness in my heart, Lord, soften my heart that I might receive you, that I might know you. And then verse 12, here's the good news. But, this is the grace of God, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who did receive him, to all who did welcome him, whether Jew or Gentile, all, it doesn't matter where you come from, if you believe in his name, you can become a child of God. To believe in, that verb with the preposition, it means to trust in, to commit yourself completely to, to yield your life to Jesus if you trust him. His name, that's all that he is, the totality of his person, all that is true about him. If you believe in his name, Accept Jesus. Welcome him into your heart. You have the right, the privilege. You receive the privilege of becoming a child of God, a member of the family. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, not by natural descent. It's not because you're born into a Christian family. It's not because you're Jewish or from any other ethnicity. It's not by blood nor of the will of the flesh. It's not because of parental passion. That has nothing to do with spiritual rebirth. It's not by the will of a man. In the ancient world, it was thought that birth was dictated by a husband, his will. No, not the will of a man, but of God. God can do what no human being could ever do. If we yield our life to Jesus, then we can be reborn by the Holy Spirit. We can receive eternal life. We can become children of God and cry, Abba, Father. We can know Jesus. Gladys Allward, she was a a courageous little woman. She felt called by God to go to China, first half of the 20th century. And on one occasion, she was uh, with some students, and these students had the map in front of them, map of China, and they were praying for a region that was unknown to them and unknown to Gladys. It was a Tibetan region, and after that prayer time, she felt prompted to go and explore what was in that region. A Chinese medical doctor decided to join her. You can read this story in a book called The Little Woman by Gladys Allward. Dr. Huang joined her on this journey after about 10 days of of travel, they had not found anything, (laughs) anyone. And so Gladys was somewhat frustrated, desperate. Dr. Huang, he got on his knees and he prayed, God, we know that you have called us to this region. Please show us the person that we are to share the good news with. He started to sing. And after singing for a while, Dr. Huang, he jumped to his feet. He said, there's the man. He looked up the hillside. There was a a Buddhist lama up on the hill. So he ran up 
and greeted the man, and the man invited him to come to his monastery. So Dr. Huang comes back, back to Gladys and says, hey, he's invited us to the monastery. And Gladys says, did you tell him I'm a woman? Why was that important? Because the Buddhist lamas, they live a strict life and they are to live separate from women. And Dr. Huang says, yeah, I told, I told him you're a woman. But he wants us to come to the monastery. So up they went. Strenuous climb. They get to this beautiful monastery imposing state, stately on the mountainside. They're welcomed in. They get into a big courtyard. And according to Gladys, there are about 500 lamas sitting on padded cushions in silence. They're not sure what to do, so they start to sing, and then they share some of the gospel message. They're tired. They just want to sleep. (laughs) So finally they get to their rooms, and Gladys is preparing to go to sleep, and while she's getting ready to go to bed, all of a sudden there's a knock on her door, and two lamas are waiting at the door, and they say, can we come in? And she says, is it okay? She says, well, if there's two of us, it's okay. So they come in and they ask, well, could you tell us about the Jesus that died for us? Could you tell us about the God who loved us? Why would he love us? So she shares more of the gospel message with them. After some time, they leave. A little while later, she's just about ready for bed. Knock again, two more lamas. Could you tell us about the Jesus that died for us? Could you tell us why he loves us? This goes on throughout the night. She doesn't sleep. Next morning, she meets Dr. Huang, and she discovers that the same thing has happened with him throughout the night. Lamas knocking on his door. Could you tell us about the Jesus that died for us? Could you tell us about the God who loves us? Help us understand. They decide to stay for a week. On the last night of their stay in that monastery, Gladys is invited to meet the head lama. She has not seen him thus far. So she's invited into his inner chamber, And she asks him, after discussing some things with him, she asks him, so why did you allow me to come into your monastery, me, a foreign woman? And why have you allowed me to talk to the lamas? And he says, and I'll read from her story, the head lama replies, it's a long story. (laughs) Eight years ago, the lamas who had taken the harvest down on the mules were passing through a village when they saw a man waving a paper. And one of the lamas took that paper and brought it back to the monastery. And for five years, we read that paper. We stuck it on the wall. And then he, the head lama, he took Gladys to a wall where this paper was on the wall. And it said, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For five years, that's all they have. And so they go to it, they look at the wall, and they read it. Met it, what does that mean? Which God is that? What God would love us? Go back, reread it. Five years, that's all they have. After five years, again, it's harvest time, time to take the harvest to the village. The lama that received that piece of paper, he says, there's got to be more. <laughs> we need to find out who this God is that loves us. And so he goes down to the village. There's 
nothing there. He says, I'm going to keep on going. And he and another lama, they keep going through villages. And finally, they get to Len Chao, and they find a mission station that tells them that there are four gospels. They receive the four gospels. They take the four gospels back to the monastery. And the head lama, he says to Gladys, we read the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We believed all that it contained, though there was much we could not understand. But one verse seemed of special importance. Christ had said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So obviously, if that God who loved the world existed, he would send a witness. All we had to do was wait. So five years, just with John 3.16, then three years with the four Gospels, eight years waiting for a witness. And then the head lama said, and then two of our lamas were on the hillside gathering sticks, and they heard some singing. <laughs> and one rushed back to the monastery and told us to get ready, and the other went down to Dr. Huang and to you, Gladys. Gladys writes, I preached the gospel in that place that God had appointed, and I left the rest to him and the work of the Holy Spirit. There's no monastery on that hillside today because shortly thereafter, the communists destroyed it. What happened to those 500 lamas? Gladys believes that many believed in Jesus and became children of God. For God so loved the world, God's light shining. The true light invites all people to become family. The true light shining on that Buddhist monastery. The written word, the four gospels shining. Living witnesses, Dr. Huang and Gladys, sent by God, appointed by him to share the gospel, to explain the meaning of John 3.16. And even today, the light continues to shine on the world through, word, world through the written word and through us as living witnesses. This Christmas, my friends, we are to be living witnesses. We are to point to the light. And so wherever we are, whether we be with family, friends, at work, wherever we are, may we point to the light, the true light, the way, the truth, and the life. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, then Jesus invites you to believe, to trust in him. The way, the truth, and the life. He invites you to become family. He invites you to turn from darkness, to turn from sin, to turn from a life separated from him. He invites you to life, to him, to receive forgiveness, to receive his Holy Spirit, to be reborn, to receive eternal life, to truly live. He invites you to become family, to become his child. We're going to go to a time of prayer. Stand, we can stand. The prayer team will come forward. Those of us that are followers of Jesus, may we be light this Christmas, a shining lamp wherever we are. <laughs>